coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, and a happy weekend to you. A little later in the show, we are going to check in with my friend Bernard Simulton with the Alabama NAACP. We'll... Uh, get his uh, response to the new congressional map that now suits the electorate for the state of Alabama. A lot better than the old one did anyway. There's also a hearing going on in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals that uh, might also be dealing with the Louisiana map. One might expect that another congressional district may find itself looking uh, a little more demographically even-handed. There's also some discussion of uh, remapping in South Carolina and Florida and Wisconsin and New York and right here in Georgia as well. And with all of the chaos going on in the House of Representatives now under GOP control right now, is it necessarily a bad thing that the GOP might lose control of the House with all of these districts being redrawn and prospects for Democrats looking better? Obviously, I would say not, but I think the opinion of the American electorate by this time next year may also fall in line with what we're thinking as well. Also going to share with you an op-ed written in yesterday's Atlanta Journal-Constitution penned by a senior at Clark Atlanta University just two weeks after the rather devastating flooding uh, in West End Atlanta and the Atlanta University Center campus is just ravaged with more than four inches of rain in less than 90 minutes. So I, I just want to share this op-ed because as I read it last night, I was I, I felt a little guilty myself, like, uh, we didn't do enough. Uh, so anyway, in fact, we're re- even reaching out to the young lady who wrote the op-ed. Hopefully we'll have her on to have a little bit of a discussion about that after the fact as well. We have some surprising September and revised August job numbers to talk about. So obviously we can talk economy here. We'll do all of that. First things first, I want to dive into some local headlines. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporting earlier today that Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens is going to extend the moratorium on development at the former Atlanta Medical Center. Donovan Thomas breaking that story, uh, writing, If approved by the Atlanta City Council, it will be April 2024, a full 18 months since the hospital was closed, before owner Wellstar Health System can do anything new with the 25-acre property that covers more than a city block in the old Fourth Ward. Full transparency, I live about two blocks from the former Atlanta Medical Center. I do not at all miss the barrage of ambulances coming through the intersection of Freedom Parkway and Boulevard just coming off of the downtown connector from all points throughout Metro Atlanta. Being Level 1 Trauma Center, along with Grady, it meant that about half of the metro area's level one trauma cases were going to come to the Atlanta Medical Center. And what with panhandlers and folks trying to cross the street to get to the dog park and to the path to the beltline, it was constant that you were going to have some blaring siren sitting at this intersection, having to use the the, the extra horns to get folks out of the way. Don't miss the noise at all, not going to lie. But I do obviously understand the need for a level one trauma center to take some of the heat off of Grady. 
Grady has expanded and has taken on a larger role in that realm. And thank goodness for that. And thank goodness for its employees for withstanding a lot of that caseload. That being said, it's curious to me that we're sitting here now looking at what will be 18 months of nothing happening at this spot in Old Fourth Ward. In fact, the neighborhood, because of the loss of the hospital and nothing coming to it since, has lost the one drugstore that's walkable within the community. CVS, pulling up stakes, they're gone. They're out. Now, I honestly am unsure what Mayor Andre Dickens envisions happening in the next six months to change what hasn't happened in the last 12 months when it comes to reuse of this hospital and its parking deck and adjacent office buildings. I have no idea. Uh, The only thing I know is like about a month ago, and and there's a little bit of contentiousness between uh, Mayor Dickens and Council Member Keisha Sean Waits, who joined this show, was it a week or two ago? We know that there's a little bit of bad blood between them. It was about a month ago, I should point this out, that uh, Council Member Waits was asked by Joy Dukes at Fox 5 Atlanta for uh, what she thought that facility should be repurposed for. Keisha Sean Waits, one of the few who have come out with at least something of an idea of what to do with this facility. Wellstar Health System's closing of Atlanta Medical Center last November, citing revenue losses, came with devastating effects on the surrounding community and accusations of healthcare redlining in light of its recent $800 million merger with Augusta University Health System. It leaves us very vulnerable. Grady right now is the only uh, level one trauma center in the region. While there's now a moratorium effectively preventing any redevelopment of the property. Atlanta City Councilwoman Keisha Sean Waits says she wants to give the former hospital facility new purpose that would benefit residents in the area. I am thrilled to have introduced or reintroduced legislation for the John Lewis Center for Equity and Wellness. The Community Wellness Center includes plans for transitional housing, a health clinic, mini courtroom, and warrant clearing center. There's a drug, alcohol, uh, recovery component, as well as a job training facility inside. Sean Waits says the proposal also includes space for 100 hotel-style short-term emergency rooms to support area hospitals overwhelmed with patients. And so for that reason, this is a a, a life-saving measure as well. City leaders voted to extend the moratorium on the sale of the facility that expired in April through the end of October. With early cost estimates around $100 million, she says she wants the health care system to gift the property to the city at no cost. I believe that this particular unit and this particular facility goes a long way in terms of changing individuals' lives and providing sorely needed services that we currently don't have. A statement from Wellstar Healthcare System says, quote, we are committed to a thoughtful process to determine the best use for the future of these sites. We continue to talk with members of the community and evaluate potential solutions. We do not currently have plans for the sites and are hopeful for a solution that benefits the community. Awaite says she's hoping that corporate and philanthropic donors will help make the proposal a reality. For now, the legislation heads over to the Community Health and Human Services Committee for further discussion. Now, I have no idea if uh, Councilmember Sean Waite's idea is going to fit in a $100 million price tag. have absolutely no idea. Uh, in fact, maybe something I should have asked her when I had her on a, a, a couple weeks ago, that minus needing to purchase the property. And again, she, she suggests that Wellstar donate the property to the city of Atlanta. I'm sure there could be some tax benefit for a corporation doing something like that. But would $100 million fill 
that wish list that she laid out. And then you have to ask, will there be pushback in the neighborhood? You have to think, you, you hear the term transitional housing and folks, the nimbyism comes out. <laughs> Again, I live two blocks from the place. I know folks who live around this area, I know the nimbyism is going to come out. That being said, having a rotting, decaying former hospital in the neighborhood isn't helping much either. Now, don't get me wrong. There's development all around Old Fourth Ward. Pond City Market, towers and condos and apartment buildings going up all around it. There is to be a new apartment community in the block between where I live and Wellstar Hospital I believe it's supposed to be upwards of eight stories, like kind of in a tiered uh, apartment building with, by the way, retail, floor-level retail. We're expecting a public supermarket to be coming uh, just behind the dog park. So it's not like the, the, the hospital being vacant is slowing development around Old Fourth Ward. You just have to wonder what sort of pushback you're going to get uh, from uh, Councilman Amir Faroki and from residents who will be living near such a facility. There is a need for something like that. The idea is there. And again, that $100 million price tag, I keep coming back to that because that $100 million price tag, so close to the $90 million price tag for the Atlanta Public Safety Training Facility, especially while Fulton County is saying, hmm, we're going to build a $50 million public safety training facility in Fulton County, which would, of course, likely be at or near or in city limits for the city of Atlanta. I don't know, just thinking out loud here. Can we get two civic needs with huge price tags dealt with without exploding our budget, needing to spend $190 million? Again, I'm just Ed Sheeraning here, thinking out loud. And oh my gosh, it just dawned on me. Oh my gosh, I didn't put this together. Maybe this is why this moratorium's getting kicked another six months. The referendum for the Stop Cop City movement would have the referendum on a ballot in March. We would know the results by April of 2024 when this new six-month moratorium would expire. Ah, maybe we're on to something here, y'all. All that being said, the mayor went on record today while getting his flu shot that what he'd really like to see is this property used again for its original purpose hospital. He told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, I really am looking forward to AMC coming back as a healthcare facility for the community. We want to make sure that people in Atlanta have many options and opportunities to get healthcare. At which point, this is where the NIMBY comes out in me. I mean, okay, I get it. We need a hospital. We need level one trauma center. Can we, can we reroute the ambulances away from the intersection where I live? It's just really loud and i do tend to work from home and uh, i'm podcasting from home and uh i don't know it's nice and quiet where i am right now just saying oh and in case you're wondering the ajc article uh mentions the fact that uh, council member keisha sean waits proposal to turn this into like a diversion and crisis center with mental health drug and alcohol treatment and short-term emergency housing that proposal has been tabled for the time being. I'll include the link to that article in today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. Also, the Fox 5 Atlanta piece that Joy Dukes did. Speaking with Keisha Sean Waits, we'll have that in today's show notes for you as well at ronshowatl.com. 
Now, I'm trying not to sound like the, the grumpy old man who lived two blocks from a noisy hospital again. I, I really am. I, again, I, I moved to the city. I moved into this building. I understood there was a hospital two blocks away when we moved here. So all good. I must say, of all the people who are disappointed that the hospital closed, I think my cat Herschel is probably the most upset because... I don't know what it is about a cat on the seventh floor of a eight story condo building, but he is fascinated, fascinated by helicopters and the medevac, uh, the, the emergency helicopters, uh, the, the, the choppers bringing the emergency uh, personnel and, and patients to the uh, helipad at the Atlanta medical center. Oh man. Herschel was fascinated by that stuff. Okay. Uh, <laughs> enough about that. Bernard Simulton with the Alabama NAACP joins me next to discuss the new congressional maps. Congrats on them for their dogged pursuit of that. We'll have him up next on The Ron Show, the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to The Weekend Ron Show. We are with Bernard Simulton from the Alabama NAACP. The new congressional map has been drawn, and now we have two majority-minority districts in the state of Alabama. Bernard, how are you today? I am doing fine, Ron, and I appreciate you having me on your show. Oh, thanks for joining us. So this has been a long time coming. Let's talk first uh, about some of the demographics. Uh, I mentioned this a little bit yesterday. Just because you have two majority-minority districts drawn doesn't necessarily mean that it's a fait accompli. You're going to have a liberal representative or someone from the Democratic Party win those two districts. There's still a lot of work to be done on the ground, but that's not necessarily what you guys are advocating for you just wanted to make sure that people of color are represented when they go to the polls correct yes yeah, so we want to make sure that uh the people of uh, people of color are represented but I, I want to kind of clarify one thing the second congressional district is only 48.7 at uh african-american mm-hmm. not 50.1 percent or right. anything like that so you know it, it's a significant increase in majority uh, representation in that uh second district and so we believe that with the uh, uh, whites that will support a potential uh, black candidate or the black candidate of choice, that you know certainly um, we'll be able to send the uh, candidate of our choice to Congress. And I want to emphasize that you know it's the candidate of choice. It doesn't necessarily have to be an African American, but right. but as long as that candidate would represent the interests of the people in that uh, district or in what we call the community of interest. Yeah, I, I want to say uh, off the top of my head, it was like a 44% white voter versus 48% African-American. And then the uh, demographics uh, file, file in uh, below those two. So uh, again, as you mentioned, not exactly a majority black congressional district, but a majority minority district nonetheless. That being said, uh, there's going to be, it, it appears uh, you've got two Alabama Congress people who are going to have to run against each other now for the new seat. I want to talk a little bit about the the geography of it. Now, I lived in uh, Mobile. I think we, we last talked, I told you I lived in Mobile for about a year and a half. And that new drawn district that kind of curls in and catches Mobile and Pritchard and kind of curls around the west and then goes up to Montgomery and over towards uh, the eastern border of Alabama, that's a, that's a stretch of geography, isn't it? I mean, somebody's going to have to really cover some ground to win that district. Well, it, it, it certainly is, and um, that will be left up to those who desire to run for those offices as to how they will go about covering the uh, those different counties. But, you know, 
the, the counties are, you know, majority of them are in the black belt, what we call the black belt area. Mm. And I th- that people will be uh, excited about the potential to elect a candidate of their choice and will will come out and, and vote. Now, organization like the NACP, we what we must do is get out and uh, register the voters uh, and educate those voters who are may have not voted low propensity voters mm-hmm. and on election day is of course to get them to the polls and that's what uh you know our work is um as a nonpartisan organization you know we can't say well you vote democrat or vote republicans we want to get those people out and make sure that they have an opportunity to have their voices heard by sending someone to Congress that they want to represent them. And there is an impact, is there not, on, uh, I, I call this the, a, a quiet voter suppression, when you don't have the opportunity to feel like y- you are represented in any sort of uh, likeness whatsoever, it, it does create a quiet suppression. It's not necessarily stopping someone from registering to vote, except for it just kind of kills their will to want to. Right. It, it, it does. Um, but, you know, we always tell people, you know, to make your voices heard, regardless if you believe that, um, you know, your candidate, uh, your person of choice will win. We want you to make sure that you get out and make your voices heard because the candidates, they listen to people. Mm. And if you are not able to um, have a, uh, you know, uh, you know elect a candidate of your choice, they will still listen to you because you can make enough noise. You can say, well, you know, if there are two candidates running that, you know, one you prefer over the other, it may not be your absolute candidate of choice, but you may be able to, uh, you know, pick the better of the two. So, you know, uh, that's, uh, that's always comes into play. True that. And, 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 I, and to that point, I always encourage folks to vote, even if they know they're living in a district or a, a portion of a city or a county where they know that their preferred candidate isn't going to win. Because even if you can't pull out the win, if you if you manage to scare a candidate with a 52 to 48 swing or a 51, 49, you know, narrow victory, it puts that candidate on notice that they can't go running to their extreme uh, whatever side of the aisle that they're on, that they have to remember that their place in in uh, winning that election is not a given next time out. Right, absolutely, and and that's what we that's why we encourage people just to you know get out and vote, uh, even though uh, again your candidate may not uh, uh, or your person of choice you know may not uh, uh, have a strong chance of winning. Mm-hmm. Get out, make your voice heard, because yeah. you know they will uh, you know, have to listen to you. So that being said, we, we know we have other, in fact, uh, the Fifth Circuit is, is uh, discussing the Louisiana map. I'm sure you'll be watching that as well with some interest. Right. Uh, Louisiana and also South Carolina, I think they are uh, going to the Supreme Court uh, sometime this, uh, this month. And uh, I've received a call from the uh, state president over there and uh, uh to talk about you know some of the things that we did when we were in D.C. Uh, last year, yeah. and so um, it, it's going to be interesting. To, and hopefully, the Supreme Court will rule in their favor also, so that uh, we can overturn some of these. Uh, uh, I guess some of these uh, uh, voting rights act violations <laughs> maps that have been you know drawn yeah. that violate Section Two right. uh, of Voting Rights Act. 
So I, I know you, you guys probably had to feel a, a huge sense of sigh of relief, but the, the work is not done. So what, what, what's the next actions inside the state of Alabama for the NAACP? Yeah, well, as I said earlier, you know, the work really begins now because we've got to get out and uh, register the people to vote, educate them uh, about why it's important to vote, because we believe that there's a lot of people in those areas who have not voted. And the reason they haven't voted is that, well, you know, there's no reason for me to mm-hmm, vote. Mm-hmm. And so now they have an opportunity to send someone to Congress that will uh, uh, represent their their interests and their needs. And so we got to uh, register them to vote and then educate them to vote. And then on election day, make sure that they know that they need to get to the polls uh, to vote. And also we'll be uh, concentrating on the absentee ballots, you know, uh, mm-hmm. people who uh, may be in nursing homes and things like that, that won't be able to get out to the polls. We want to ensure that they have their voices heard as well. Absolutely. Bernard Simulton, Alabama NAACP. Congratulations on the uh, new map this week. And uh, thanks for joining us on The Ron Show. Okay. Thank you, Ron. Appreciate it. Broadcasting five days a week to make common sense common again. This is The Ron Show on America One Radio. So I thought one of the big headlines yesterday in Trump land would be that, yeah, if uh, if they need me, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll be Speaker of the House. Does he think that that is the get-out-of-jail-free card, the insta-pardon that becoming president is? That's not going to keep... I mean, first of all, the dude has court cases to deal with in Atlanta and Washington and New York and in Florida. He doesn't have time to be Speaker of the House. He's also, I think, going to have a few more problems to deal with. Man, ABC News last night brought the straight heat. David Muir bringing it to us. Turn now to an ABC News exclusive involving former President Trump and nuclear secrets. Sources telling ABC News an Australian billionaire who was friends with Trump has told special counsel Jack Smith's team that the former president shared potentially sensitive information about America's nuclear submarines while at Mar-a-Lago and after Donald Trump left the White House. ABC News learning that that billionaire allegedly then shared those U.S. nuclear secrets with dozens of others, including foreign officials, even his own employees. Are you f-ing kidding me? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Nuclear secrets. And, and by the way, I'll get to the rest of the story in a little bit. We're talking about nuclear submarines. We're talking military nuclear secrets. Men and women, our armed forces in submarines. And Donald's just doling out the intel like it ain't no big deal. Like it ain't his ass on the line if our adversaries knew where these submarines, these nuclear submarines, might be lurking unbeknownst to our adversaries. This is the same guy, by the way, whose former chief of staff, John Kelly, confirmed that he called veterans suckers and losers. This statement was released on Monday to CNN, where he delivered this scathing criticism of the former president, confirming reporting in The Atlantic done back in 2020 that gave some details about comments that the former president used to make. John Kelly saying, a person that thinks those who defend their country in uniform or are shot down or seriously wounded, John McCain, in combat or spend years being tortured as POWs, John McCain, are all suckers because there's nothing in it for them. That's what former Trump chief of staff John Kelly said of Donald Trump. 
He continued, A person that did not want to be seen in the presence of military amputees because it doesn't look good for me. A person who demonstrated open contempt for a Gold Star family, for all Gold Star families, on TV during the 2016 campaign, and rants that our most precious heroes who gave their lives in America's defense are losers and wouldn't visit their graves in France. Yeah, that's the same guy who is just callously doling out nuclear secrets to his foreign billionaire friends at Mar-a-Lago, where he also <laughs> had classified secrets in boxes in the sh- David Muir then threw it to Jonathan Carl for the story. An Australian billionaire and member of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago club has told special counsel Jack Smith's team that the former president told him potentially sensitive information about the capabilities of America's nuclear submarines. Mm. Sources familiar with the matter tell ABC News. The alleged disclosure took place at Mar-a-Lago in April 2021, Mm. months after Trump left the White House. The billionaire, Anthony Pratt of U.S.-based Pratt Industries, then shared the information with scores of others, including more than a dozen foreign officials, several of his own employees, and a handful of journalists, according to the sources familiar with the matter. Pratt has been close to Trump for years. Anthony is one of the most successful men in the world, Uh, perhaps Australia's most successful man, as they say. According to sources, Pratt told investigators that when Trump told him the sensitive information, the former president was leaning towards him, allegedly sharing two critical pieces of information about U.S. nuclear subs. The supposed exact number of nuclear warheads they routinely carry and exactly how close they supposedly can get to a Russian submarine without being detected. I mean, does any of this surprise us, though? This is the same guy who was showing off Interesting to Kid Rock on the golf course. Kid Rock told us, I'm sorry, Kid Rock told Tucker Carlson this. It's just, you're just cutting it up. Just open with politics. And I was there with him one day when he ended the caliphate. He wanted to put out a tweet and it was like, I don't like to speak out of school. I hope I'm not, but that's something like, he's like, tell him like, yeah, the tweet was, and I'm paraphrasing, but it was like, you know, if you ever join the caliphate, you know, and try to do this, you're going to be dead. He goes, what do you think? I go, Awesome. Like, yeah, tweet that out. <laughs> I was like, I can't add anything better than that. But then it comes out and it's very, it's reworded and more political and like, you know, a little politically correct. And I'm like, just being pretty, you know, we're looking at maps. And I'm like, you know, I'm like, am I supposed to be like in on No. <laughs> I make dirty records sometimes. I'm like, what I do it here. You didn't think you'd have a hand. What do you that? think we should do about North Korea? I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't think I'm qualified to answer this. <laughs> <laughs> but then neither was Donald Trump, to be honest with you. So, you know, no big deal. Back to ABC News and Jonathan Carl's reporting. The specific capabilities of America's nuclear submarines is a tightly guarded national security secret. Was. Sources tell ABC News that no sooner had Trump shared the information with Pratt, the Australian billionaire started telling other people. Oh my God. Those sources tell ABC that one of Trump's former employees at Mar-a-Lago told investigators that minutes after Trump spoke to Pratt, he heard the Australian telling someone else what Trump had told him. Mm. In all, Pratt described what the former president had told him 
in emails and in conversations with at least 45 others, including six journalists, 11 of his company's employees, 10 Australian officials, and three former Australian prime ministers, the sources told ABC News. The potential disclosure was uncovered as part of the investigation into Trump's alleged mishandling of classified documents, the sources told ABC News. But there is no indication that Trump showed the Australian any of those classified documents. It's unclear if the information Trump allegedly shared with Pratt was accurate, but ABC News was told the investigators asked Pratt not to repeat it, suggesting it was too sensitive to share. Well, it's a little too late for that. I want to say it was like December 2018, Michelle Obama was giving uh, a speaking engagement to a girl's school in London, I want to say, and she told the young women in the audience, I have been at probably every powerful table that you can think of. I have worked at nonprofits. I have been at foundations. I have worked in corporations, served on corporate boards. I have been at G summits. I have sat in at the UN. They are not that smart. That was her way of saying that people that we think are brilliant because they're successful. I mean, God, Elon Musk, does he look like a brilliant person to you? Does he seem like a brilliant person to you? The man bought Twitter, a profitable social media venture, at an inflated price, has since deflated the value of it, and we think he's brilliant? Oh, but Tesla, well, he didn't invent the electric vehicle. He didn't invent the Tesla model cars. No, he just bought a company that did. It doesn't make him brilliant. It means he had the means to buy something that was successful. And in the case of Twitter, to turn it into a raging dumpster fire. She's right. Michelle Obama's right. These people aren't always all that smart. Think about this, though. Let, let's, let's paint this picture. A former president of the United States, who obviously has ambitions on being president again, because we know now... Fast forward two years later, he's running for the office again, hanging on to classified documents and storing them in boxes in a country club bathroom and on a stage of all places. Not very bright. Not very bright. Not the best people. Uh, <laughs> is whispering nuclear secrets to an Australian billionaire pal at said Mar-a-Lago resort who then turns around and tells other people that he knows and works with and folks that work for him, the same sort of thing, like no red flag came up in anyone's mind. You know, I might ought not be sharing this stuff. I might ought to either keep my lips sealed or maybe I need to tell authorities that this sort of stuff is being told to me by someone who's not authorized to share it. No. Just keep telling the. It's that juicy, hot gossip. Oh, girl, I can't wait to tell you. Wait until we catch up, girl. I got some gossip for you, honey. We are talking about a man who told a biographer back in 2016. He admitted this. Literally said, when I look at myself in the first grade and I look at myself now, I'm basically the same. What? So the body of evidence, the stack of reasons that that one man right there has absolutely no business in office as a dog catcher in any small town, let alone Speaker of the House, you know, just for a little while until you all figure something out, <laughs> or returning to the office of the presidency, the presidency of the United States, the greatest country on the planet, the world superpower, and that is what one party says 
by an overwhelming majority. Yeah, I think that's the guy who we want leading our brand and in leading our brand, leading our country because we're going to back him. Last night, the Blaze uh, tweeting out a clip of Hillary Clinton on CNN with the breathless tweet. Hillary Clinton calls for Trump supporters to be re-educated. Very strong partisans in both parties in the past. Uh, and we had very bitter battles over all kinds of things, gun control and climate change and the economy and taxes. But there wasn't this little tail of extremism waving, you know, wagging the dog of the uh, Republican Party as it is today. Mm-hmm. And sadly, so many of those extremists, those mega extremists, um, take their marching orders from Donald Trump, who has no credibility left by any measure. He's only in it for himself. He's now defending himself in civil actions and criminal actions. And when do they break with him? You know, because at some point, you know, maybe there needs to be a formal deprogramming of the cult members, but something needs to happen. And how do you- I mean, I'm with Christiane Amanpour. How the hell are you going to do that? I mean, seriously, it's 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 a legitimate. Listen, Hillary Clinton is not wrong. Oh, it pains me to say that. I'm a Bernie guy. It pains me to say, you know what? Everything she predicted would be about Donald Trump as president of the United States. And after the fact, Hillary Clinton predicted it. She was spot on correct about that. I don't think she handled the primary process right and trying to unify that she totally muffed that punt but I, I she was dead right about Donald Trump and she's dead right about this there 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 does need to be a reprogramming of some sort unfortunately I, I just don't know how you do it as Christian Anamampour was gonna well how are you gonna do that no idea it's not gonna be 91 indictments it's not gonna be grabber by the it's not gonna be veterans and military personnel or suckers and losers it's not gonna be being exposed for all the world to know the man is a fraud of a business person. I mean, we knew, those of us who bothered to check, we knew that. NBC, the Celebrity Apprentice, bailed him out financially. Reality television, us loving reality television, us seeing him boss Dennis Rodman around, bailed Donald Trump out from being just a huge, abject failure facade of a human being. And now you've got a guy who admits to a biographer seven years ago, I don't think I've really changed much maturity-wise since first grade. I think he thinks he's trying to tell us he was mature at the uh, ages of six and seven. I don't... mm. Anyway, that guy also leaning in and telling our American nuclear military secrets just because some billionaire is friendly to him at his golf club in his country club, in the dining room, we we're, we <laughs> we have two major political parties in this country, and one of them has a voting block that is just dead set on renominating that guy to be president of the United States again. Hell yeah, there needs to be a reprogramming. I don't know how you do it. Christiane Amanpour doesn't. Hillary Clinton doesn't either. But Hillary's not wrong. I don't know what it's going to take. What's it going to take? It's going to take one of those like. Uh, fogging trucks like they have rolling through the neighborhoods for to spray for mosquitoes? Can we slip in a facts and logic serum? Something that just kind of makes people see the light? See what we see? Y'all, Toto, long ago pulled the curtain. The wizard has been exposed. He's just a little weasel of a man hiding behind a curtain, pulling levers, and the losers and suckers are the ones that don't see it. It ain't our military veterans. 
It's not our men and women in those nuclear submarines, by the way, that he's exposing to danger. It ain't them. It's the idiots who 60% or better of the Republican voting base says, yeah, I'm down for another round of Donald Trump. Those, my friend, those are the suckers and the losers. And if you want to know why we're staring down the barrel at the potential, just even the slight potential of a second Trump presidency, I'm looking right now as I am recording this segment about an hour before it will air, and I went to the search page at foxnews.com. I just typed in the words Trump and nuclear, and there's nothing about this story at foxnews.com, which means there's nothing about this story on Fox News Channel. Suckers and losers, viewers of Fox News, folks who follow the blaze, talk radio fanatics. You know Clay Travis didn't talk about this, Eric Erickson either. The suckers, the losers, are the ones who hang by every word of those media mavens while paying no attention with the biased ABC News with David Muir last night told anyone who would pay attention to them. Back after this, The Ron Show on the American One Radio app, AmericanOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. All right, final segment of The Ron Show for the week. Uh, the uh, September jobs report numbers came out. 336,000 new jobs and 119,000 in upward revisions from some uh, previous months. So 455,000 new jobs altogether. That, by the way, when you break it down, comes down to, I believe it's 96% when you go back to 1989. So if you go back 35 years, nearly 35 years, 50 million jobs have been created in America. Of those, 48 million, 48 of 50 million jobs created since 1989 have been created under Democratic presidents. That is 96% of all jobs created since 1989, under Democratic presidents. And yet, Democrats pull behind Republicans when it comes to the economy. Democrats pull behind Republicans when it comes to immigration. And yet, Republicans do nothing about immigration. They think a wall is the solution. And I know there's a lot of hand-wringing about the Biden administration continuing again some wall construction that by law had to happen because the money was allocated and et cetera and so on. And the president said, walls don't work. And he's right. Walls don't work. Did did Trump's four years of wall building do anything for our current immigration situation? By the way, do I need to point out that a lot of the surge we're dealing with right now is coming from Venezuela? Venezuela and its leader, Maduro, tightly allied with Vladimir Putin, Vladimir Putin and Syrian dictator Assad creating an immigration crisis in Europe. Putin is weaponizing immigration. I have no doubt in my mind. I, I think he's behind the, the Brexit movement. And we're, we're starting to see pushback because we have complicit Republican leaders in border states and non-border states, inexplicably, why is a Floridian governor sending folks from Texas, not Florida, but from Texas, to northern cities, other than to just stir the pot? They are complicit with what I believe is Vladimir Putin's goal, stated goal, 
to affect regime change in the United States. And it's, it's creating some hostility even within the left. Illinois' governor, New York's governor, New York City's mayor, Eric Adams, they, they've all sort of chimed in saying, we got to do something about this. No, we absolutely do need to do something about our immigration crisis. Not going to question that. But I think we have to, again, talk about the long and storied history of the United States intervening in Central and South America and the instability that that's caused and picking winners and losers in countries that we really had no business doing that in. Okay, sticking to the jobs numbers, the economy, that's another fantastic number, 336,000 with a revision that leads us to another 455,000 jobs in growth since our last monthly jobs report. Biden economy just keeps rolling on, and the American voters don't seem to be noticing that. Even when you deal with inflation, inflation is now being outpaced by income gains. Okay. Uh, I was hoping to talk with uh, Jacqueline uh, Aza. I think that's how we say her name. She is a Clark Atlanta University senior and works with the Georgia Youth Justice Coalition in youth mobilization. She's a poli-sci major, also active with Students Demand Action, which of course seeks to end gun violence. She penned an op-ed that I'm going to share in today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. And it made me think, it made me pause to think about uh, even my attention span. And I'm constantly trying to work on that, you know? What am I paying attention to? What am I giving this show's airtime to? In fact, we did invite her. And again, it was at the last minute today, so I'm not mad at her for that. She may even be on vacation. I'm noticing on her Instagram She's enjoying some time in a tropical destination with friends and or family, so I can't be mad at her for that. I did text back and forth with her dad, and we're trying to effort something, so maybe we'll have her on Monday. She penned an op-ed in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that spoke to the lack of rallying of the community, the larger city of Atlanta community and civic leaders to help not just Atlanta University Center students, but residents of the West End around those campuses when it comes to combating the tragic effects of flooding more than two weeks ago. Good op-ed. I'll, I'll give you a piece of it right now. She starts, two weeks ago, my campus flooded. I was drenched and stepping over puddles, but knew I needed to make it to class. Clark Atlanta University is built on a hill. As I ran to my class at the top, water was flooding past me toward the end of campus. When I walked into a half-filled classroom, I realized... I was somehow one of the few students who made it on time. One by one, my classmates started to roll into the room with mud-covered shoes, soaked jeans, and outturned umbrellas. 30, 40, and then 60 minutes passed until we were able to start class. Our professor tried to keep our attention and move on with lesson plans. However, as much as we all wanted it to be class as usual, most of us ended up anxiously peeking out the window, watching our campus flood, while trying to check in on our friends. Here comes the part where I felt the gut punch. We spent most of the period sending each other social media posts that captured the worst of the flooding. Whispers of, oh my God, have you seen this? Ran through the classroom. One of my friends passed me their phone to watch a video of three students in my former freshman dorm trying to force their way out of the building. I later discovered the storm destroyed a close friend's car entirely. Another classmate lost part of their home. Yet it seemed like nobody but Clark Atlanta students and our West End neighbors were hearing of the devastating impact. 
it seemed like there was no widespread support, no influx of donations outside of HBCUs and local schools, and barely any news coverage. I wish I could say this situation felt new to us, but it did not. It is an old, familiar pattern. She goes on to give many more examples of where the greater society is ignoring the problems that these college students and their neighbors around them are dealing with issues that seem to go largely unnoticed, not just by us, but by civic leaders. Even Kamala Harris, vice president, who was there, briefly spoke of the flooding, briefly. Of course, she points out how the mayor who was there to do a little introduction before Kamala was to speak, wasn't paying attention to the students and their views on Cop City. Anyway, I'm hoping to have her on next week. It's a great op-ed. I'll have it in today's show notes and a lot more at ronshoytl.com. Back here Monday, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, americawanradio.com, and then afterwards wherever you podcast. Listen, have a great weekend. See you Monday.